Hello and welcome to Dinesh Guarda Cities ABC Open Business Council series with another fantastic interview uh, that I welcome today and I keep uh, profiling some of the most interesting people in the world that are looking at multiple different areas about our world, about our intelligence, and how to make the world a better place from ideas to books and a lot of different things. So today I welcome Dr. Lion Pahe, that is the co-founder and partner in the Leadership Forum. He's as well the creator and leader of the Intelligence Leadership Forum, that is an organization focused on these areas of reflecting leadership, intelligence, and all the areas related with this, from emotional intelligence to a lot of different areas, our organizations can improve their management. Dr. Lyon has been a faculty member of Northwestern University Kellogg School of Management and Boston University, and he now serves as, as professor of management practice at Babson College. His consulting, teaching, research, and writing focus has been always in the areas of making bridge and empowering organizations to win in the marketplace through enhanced marketplace intelligence and insight. He advises leaders, conducts workshops, consults, and looks at different areas how to make the teams better productive and especially how leadership and intelligence can make the bridge. He's the author of an editor of eight books and over 50 articles and book chapters. Um, one of his last books is precisely um, the book of What's the Big Idea? Um, that was actually from 2003 and actually has been working in a lot of areas and reflecting in the major ways where leadership can actually bridge with intelligence and special management. So welcome to our series. And of course, I could start and keep reading uh, all the achievements in terms of leadership and in terms of awards and recognitions, where he's a global recognized author and expert in terms of, uh, I think just to finish probably uh, as the top 150 management gurus based on the internet search and as well um, outstanding teacher of the year, which I think for me is particularly important being as well myself a teacher, especially in the relationship with, teach with the students in the Kellogg School students. So welcome to our series, Dr. Lyon. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you. <clears throat> so I want to start, uh, so you have a fantastic academic, but as well an author and as well a bridge with the industry. So I want to start uh, uh, by the basis of uh, being someone that has been uh, in a uh, faculty member of Northwestern University Kellogg School, which is one of the leading management schools in the world, and as well in Boston University. What would be your trajectory and the areas where you've been kind of uh, see the footprint of your work and there's all the relationship with the university and then with the academia and as well with the, with the industry? How do you see these relationships? Which I think is key for me, how you make all these areas talk with each other. The university, the academia, which is much more complex than the students. And then of course the industry and all the management that you've been doing and consultancy. And that's a broad question. Uh, let me go back to the beginning here. <clears throat> when I joined the faculty at the Kellogg School at Northwestern, my perspective on my potential career was all about being an academic. Uh, that was what I wanted to do. As I got more and more into the academic life, I realized that there was a major fork in the road that some people took and some didn't. 
you either decided to be a full-time academic doing academic kinds of things within an academic institution, or you veered out to be focusing on the practice of management and the practice of leadership. And it was the latter that really excited me. That's where I wanted to be. But I also wanted to keep a foothold in the academic world. Um, so the, the trust of my career has largely been around making a bridge between the practice of management and the academic understanding of it. So if you look at all of the books and articles that I've done, it's in large measure around building that bridge. The other side of it was that I want to spend my life year after year teaching MBA students. And I realized after 15 years, the emphatic answer to that question was no. It was much more revealing, much more exciting, much more interesting, and a much more learning experience to be engaging with executives in their own companies. I did a lot more learning and hopefully they did too. Yeah, and, and I think one question I have on that, because I've been teaching as well, and like you mentioned, mm. uh, teaching is very difficult because you need to keep continuous, first of all, passion for, for teaching, but as well bridging students, bridging different passion as well, and as well different, even attention and all the different things. So from that experience and a very wealth experience in teaching, um, and um, you're teaching as well the future management teams around the world because it's a very leading, very leading universities. What would be like the some of the stories or some of the things that you want to share with us that have been kind of uh, uh, very rewarding because you were as well considered one of the best teachers, but as well some of the things that you want to share to our audience about teaching and that experience. That of course right now you went to the other side, but I think it would be interesting to hear about that background. Yeah. Um... When I looked around at academias and business schools in particular, my judgment was and still is that large, large numbers of academics fell into two camps. They either were committed to learning more and more about less and less. They were so focused in their theories and in their academic work that they had lost touch, really lost touch with the practice of management. And the other group that was there was people who had moved towards the practitioner side, but had lost touch with the academic side. And I wanted to build a bridge between the two. So to give you one example, uh, my most recent book on the insight perspective uh, people don't believe me when I say this, but that book was actually 30 years in the making because a lot of the work that I was doing with companies was helping them to analyze current emerging and future competitors are looking at their broad competitive or industry landscape and working with them to get the right kinds of data, do the right kinds of analysis. But at the end of the day, being able to deliver to an executive team three or four or five crucial insights that weren't necessarily evident in the data that we gathered. And so it was building that bridge be from data to analysis to genuine insight, where we're distinguishing insight from just a set of findings. That was what got me excited about a lot of the practice that I was engaged in. And that was really the genesis of the uh, insight uh, discipline book, even though it took me uh, 25 years to get around to writing the darn thing. That's a, that's a very impressive, uh, and I think the, you you completely touched the main point. And I, before I go to that, I just want to, in terms of more of your background, yeah. because I want to, I have a lot of questions around the book. Um, so the book is just for the people listening to us, um, is 
business are rich in data but poor in insights which i think it's a it's a it's a mandatory book for everyone listening to us and i want to touch more about that in the next part of the second part of the interview but i want to touch first so from that bridge like you mentioned from um, the academic role to start working with the industry how did you make that bridge and how do you start on that because i think this is probably one of the biggest things right now because um, doing an MBA is very demanding and uh, it's very demanding from the teachers, from the, the students, but at the same time is a very big bridge with the industry because all the MBAs, uh, MBA students and management students, are most of them are actually C-level and they are already within the industry. Um, so I would like to touch that because I think this is one of the biggest challenges that we're facing right now in terms of the bridge between academy industry and the society in general but as well there's a lot of uh, questions around how important are the mbas so there was alan musk recently questioned that which i don't completely subscribe it has to be taken within the context of what i spoke but i would like to hear how did you make that bridge in particular and then once you start the bridge how do you start relating to the industry yeah, in, in, in my case, it happened in, in two different ways. One way that it happened was in doing executive education programs at a university base. And I think I've done exec ed at 12 different universities around the world. That gave me access to people in the classroom who then got intrigued by whatever it was that I was teaching. And they would then invite me to come in and talk to people inside the company. The other way that it happens is when you write something, it catches attention and people want to come back to you and talk to you more about it. Um, so it's a combination of those two things. But uh, I spoke recently to a small set of young academics who were asking exactly the same question that you just asked me. And I basically told them two things. One, to dine on self be true, to quote Shakespeare you've got to really understand what it is that you want to do, what kinds of contributions you want to make and to whom. Once you get clarity on that, then you've got to build your own value proposition to whatever audience you're going after. So if you're going down the academic road, you've generally got to build new theory, empirically test those theories, get written up in the right kinds of age journals, et cetera, et cetera. If you're going down the practitioner road, then you've got to have a value proposition, which is conveying something of value to the practitioner community and engage with them. But every engagement should be treated as a learning experience for you. So at the end of each engagement, you're walking away from that engagement, having learned more than you, than you knew when you walked into it. So for, for people moving into that world, very important that they see it as a two-way street. I completely agree. And I think it's it's not an easy uh, though, because I think that the, the quantity of intelligence and the quantity of knowledge that is passing right now between industries, sectors, and digital and offline is becoming bigger and bigger. But sometimes you forget as well about the people. And, uh, and as well, for each successful company, there's always a management team, a management, even philosophy, that is behind it. So you were named uh, one of the top uh, 150 management gurus based on internet search and different areas. Um, so can you tell us a bit about how you see the idea of a management guru and, and some case studies where your influence in a company was quite relevant. For instance, in the case of, uh, well, from Apple to, um, well, for instance, I, I saw recently a fantastic interview from uh, 
um, Eric Schmidt, where he was talking precisely about some of the Silicon Valley gurus that changed the entire philosophy and way of management, and as well the approach towards their their ways of handling teams, handling software, handling a lot of different things. And for instance, the work that uh, uh, the late Clayton Christensen had in terms of affecting companies like Apple to create a lot of different solutions. So I would like to hear from your side and from your experience as being one of these gurus, uh, what would be some of the, the particular case studies that you had in your career that you really felt that really made this difference and actually you made an effect according to your uh, writing and your studies? First, let me be very, very clear on something. I hate the word guru and I hate guru being applied to me. And I'll tell you a very funny story. My good buddies, Larry Prusak and Tom Davenport, when they wrote that book, um, The Big Idea, uh, they sent me a copy of the book and they said I should read it carefully. And I thought it was a bit of a joke. And I skimmed through the book and I said, well, let me go see who the hell these gurus are. And lo and behold, if my name wasn't in there, uh, which I didn't really appreciate, but nonetheless, they had a good joke at my expense. Apparently, what they had done was a search of the, um, of the web for citations and references, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I turned up in that uh, immortal uh, top, whatever it is. Um, that's a long segue into a good question. I'll give you one example of um, how total serendipity can change a life, change a perspective, change a career. Um, I knew somebody at IBM and they invited me in to give a talk. And I was for a small group of people in their industry analysis, market research groups. And they said that we, you know, 15, 20 people will keep it informal, etc. So I pulled up a little presentation, was all ready to roll, walked into the room, and there was 200 people in the room. So right away, I had to do a quick mind shift and threw out the presentation I was going to do and went into a completely different orbit with the 200 people in the room. Um, the bad news or the good news was uh, that little engagement lasted 19 years. Uh, doing work for IBM all around the world in the area of competitor, competitive and industry analysis with various projects in different parts of the IBM business. Um, in that kind of exposure, that kind of experience, um, you can't even dream of having that kind of experience. And yet it fell right into my lap. Uh, an amazing learning experience working with a lot of really, really outstanding people um, where I learned a hell of a lot more than they did. That's wonderful. And I think that's a great case study. I completely am with you about this idea of influences and gurus, which is right now becoming more crazy. But I, I think you are, um, in the end of the day, you are authentic about what you do. And I think that that case study is, is amazing and shows as well the power that you've been having as an expert and as well as someone that has been inspiring, I prefer as inspiring and researching on these areas. So you created the Intelligence Leadership Forum. That is a, a company and a platform uh, dedicated to enabling organizations to win. I love this. So can you elaborate on this and what do you mean by win? Because there's so much ways of winning and so much ways of losing as well. But the American way of management is really particularly powerful and probably is unique in the world because you have and I want to put the second part of the interview of the question is the dealing, winning and dealing with failure. 
but winning and what you mean by winning because it's very american and i think in europe for instance where i am being partly Portu <clears throat> portuguese and a bit french the failure is a mark for entrepreneur and even in the uk where i'm based right now in the last uh, decade i've been finding that london is very about winning and success but if you get out there's still a lot of uh, question marks around winning. And if you go to other cultures, it becomes even more complex. So I would like to hear about that because I first work in Sweden, Denmark, and winning in Sweden, Denmark, you need to be very careful because if you win too much, your community probably won't be very happy about that. So I just would like to touch that, especially from your angle of yeah. what you define by, by winning. Yeah. Well, let me go back to the first part of your question, the Intelligence Leadership Forum. Um, it's an interesting story. Uh, <clears throat> working with a couple of companies, the heads of intelligence. And these are folks whose job is to look outside the firm, understand what change is taking place, where change is heading, and what the implications are back to your business. And uh, three, two or three of them told me at about the same time that we don't have anywhere to go to talk to each other, to learn from each other, to share stories, to share best practice, to engage with outside speakers. And I said, look, that, that's a very easy problem to solve because I can put together a forum. I will invite in 10, 12, 15, 18 members, companies. We'll meet uh, three times a year for two days. And we initiated that forum in February of 04. And we agreed that we would let it run for three or four years. We're now into our 18th year. Okay. We have about 15 members, and these are generally heads of intelligence of large global corporations. And we get together three times a year with a very open agenda, sometimes with outside speakers, sometimes not. That links back to the second part of your question, because from an intelligence point of view, Winning really has two elements. It has the element of being the leader in your markets in the short run and being the leader in your markets in the longer run. And they're not necessarily compatible, especially in the American system where Wall Street dominates and Wall Street rules. Many companies make decisions that allow them to look good in the short run, but they eat their own seed corn and have problems in the longer run. So if you look at a company like GE that did great for about 20, 25 years, at the same time, they weren't building internally the innovation capabilities that were required to build new businesses. And once they're into trouble in two or three of their businesses simultaneously, they didn't have enough stock in arms to be able to come back and build new businesses and continue their upward pattern in revenues, growth, margins, profitability, et cetera, et cetera. So from an intelligence point of view, winning very much has the short run and the longer run, but it also has an internal, an internal side, and that is building the internal capabilities that will take you into the future. So it's the combination of internal, external, on the external, internal, long-term on the external, and building the desired capabilities on the internal. Terribly difficult to do. Not many companies in the history of the world have done it in the long run. Um, but that's got to be the aim. I love it. And I think it's really very important how you get the internal, the external, and you create that culture. And as well, you persist and you persevere because winning is as well a capacity of adaptation. So I want to go a bit more on the, again, on the uh, continuing on the, the, um, the Intelligence Leadership Forum. So uh, you have a huge amount of research and integrated um, 
leadership developing, um, research, inclusion, diversity, executive assessment, coaching, and different things. So again, some case studies, you mentioned IBM, but other case studies that you have on this area that you see that uh, have been kind of uh, catalysts towards your work and towards your experience, but as well things that you've been seeing that uh, have been like case studies that you can actually share with us. Yeah, let me be very, very clear on one item, on the diversity, inclusion, etc. in our company leadership forum. That's all led and handled by um, our co-founder, Wanda Wallace. I try to stay away from that side of the world. I work on the business strategy, intelligence side, okay? just to be clear. Mm -hmm. um, two points are probably worth making here. When we meet in the intelligence leadership forum, it's the members who drive the agenda, okay? So for example, back in June of last year, we did a half day on what we called uh, fast cycle scenarios. That is building scenarios around your industry or your product technology or Europe or Southeast Asia or whatever, but doing it much more quickly than the traditional firms who do scenario work uh, take to do that kind of work and get at the implications back to the business. So the intelligence uh, leaders in the meeting were very interested in how can you do that work, do high quality work, do it pretty quickly, engage people in your organization and get to where you want to be in literally a two month time span. Okay? So that's one example of the work that we did in the intelligence leadership forum. Another one that I know you're very interested in, uh, our last meeting at the beginning of February, we had a speaker come in whom I know very well, and he led us through some of the digital implications in your consumption ecosystem and in your production ecosystem, and how those two come together to create both new opportunities and threats for a company, as well as how you manage the implications of it internally. Uh, so there's two examples of the kinds of things that we've looked at in, um, in the Intelligence Leadership Forum, both of which get back to your earlier question, got to do with winning because you're preparing the organization to understand what is or could happen externally, and then internally how you're prepared to take advantage of what you see happening. I think this is really probably the biggest shift and most difficult part right now. So. I want to go right now to towards uh, your books. So you have um, an amazing uh, amount of books. So I will just go through some of the titles. So the Insight Discipline, Competitors, Learning from the Future, Energy Management uh, in Industrial Firms, the Insight Discipline, Macro Environmental Analysis for Strategical Management and the Portable M MBA Strategy. And, that, and there's a couple more. So before going to the last one, I'm particularly interested to the one that you have is learning from the future. And I think it's particularly interesting. This one is from Wiley. And, uh, and I think it's uh, key for our world because uh, it's, it's so complex what is happening right now. And this was done, of course, with Robert uh, Randall, just from a question of respect. Um, how do you see this? Because in the end of the day, right now, we're living the future <laughs> by a lot of purpose for good and for bad. We have all this technology, we have all these different things, but companies are struggling. And at the same time, we have a couple of corporations that have more value and more capacity than most of the world altogether. If you put probably the top 10 most uh, biggest corporations in the planet. So I would like to learn a bit how do you look at this learning from the future and some of the 
the research conclusions that you got from that book? Um, again, that book is a compendium of contributions from, I think, 16 different people that we work with very carefully to provide a, full, a fully detailed understanding for the reader about what scenarios are, how you develop them, how you create them, how you derive implications for them, etc., etc. Uh, Robert and myself wrote, I think, six or seven of the chapters. Again, that book emerged out of work we were doing in the 80s and in the 90s, helping companies to understand change in their environments and uh, where that change was likely to go and conceptualize it in terms of three or four scenarios and then work backwards to implications for our own organization. Um, a lot of work uh, in practice with different kinds of companies around the world provided the case studies for the book. Um, a lot of time was spent in getting those case studies right so that when the reader would go through it, he or she or they could see the steps involved in building different kinds of scenarios, the challenges involved, how to deal with those challenges, and critically, how to avoid lots of the errors that we saw companies make in developing those, those scenarios. One of the real big challenges in scenario work, and this actually was a contributing factor to writing the, um, the Insight uh, Discipline book, the big challenge for, for companies and the big challenge for countries and for not-for-profit organizations is you end up with a mental model of how the world works that is terribly difficult to get out of. So if I go back to IBM, they had a historic mental model that we do business around mainframe computers. But if you look at their, trends, uh, their developments over the last 20, 25 years, they moved into a whole variety of businesses that in many respects had little if anything to do with uh, mainframes per se. But it was an awful challenge for the board and for the company and senior executives who had come up through IBM to break away from that mentality. If you look at companies as diverse as Volkswagen and, and uh, GM at the moment, they've had a heck of a struggle moving from uh, gasoline-driven engines to electric-driven engines. It's taken them several years to make that bridge. And I know in one of those companies about four or five years ago when the internal team made a presentation to the senior executive team on the emergence of the uh, electric uh, the electric batteries, et cetera, et cetera, they were essentially laughed out of court and told to go home because they were challenging the embedded, uh, difficult to challenge mental model about how we do business, what's the source of our success, what kinds of cars do customers want, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and they were left out of court. Uh, five, six years later, there's been a fundamental turnaround, often led by new members of the executive team, but that shift caused a lot of contention, uh, cost a lot of money, cost a lot of investment, was very difficult to manage. Completely, and I think this is the important thing right now. So your last book is uh, Business Are Rich in Data but Poor in Insight. And, and as well, um, this book highlights the insight discipline and the prove, uh, looks at proven blueprint for marketeers and business leaders to gain marketplace understanding what makes a difference. And as well, all the pressure to navigate the current global crisis, COVID, and ensure the organizations. So I know as well that this is a book, like you mentioned, that took um, a lot of time to do, like you mentioned before. So can you elaborate on this? Because this is probably the most important thing. And the intelligence is actually 
increasingly more important. So as a second layer of the question, I want to see as well how you, how you look at this, especially as we get um, the elements of technology, especially artificial intelligence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the historic pattern that we, we saw in practice and advocated by a lot in academia as well and by many of the so-called gurus was to get better quality data and get more accurate data uh, develop very intensive databases, create a portal, all driven by the access to new technology. So if you go back before that technology was available, the whole emphasis was on creating data and being able to present data to the executive team. As we got more and more into the practice of what was actually happening, what we began to see was that executives, particularly senior executives, didn't per se want data. What they wanted was better understanding of the world around them. And so we developed a concept of insight as something very simple, but quite difficult to apply. And our concept of insight was the following. New marketplace understanding that makes a difference to the organization's thinking, decision-making, and action. There are two parts there. The first part is new marketplace understanding. So to take an example, uh, lots of our analysis is around competitors. So one of the classic new understandings that we developed in one company was the dominant competitor was actually pulling back from the business because they considered that it was not worth their while from a margin and profitability point of view. The prior understanding was that this competitor was going to invest heavily in that market and so we had a major clash of understandings. So we looked very carefully at the difference between the old and the new understanding. And then we look at the implications of it, accepting it as a, as a forecast of the future. And then look at the implications of it for our thinking, our decisions, and our actions. So in this particular company, the new understanding of where the competitor was heading meant that we had to go back and fundamentally change the assumptions that we had made historically, often tacitly, about where this competitor was heading and therefore what the marketplace dynamics were going to be in this market over the next three or four or five years. And one of the implications for decisions was that they were actually going to open up new opportunity for us in the market by virtue of pulling back, which we hadn't realized was going to be there which then led to some significant shifts in our strategy. And that immediately led to a change in our action plan around our marketing, what we wanted to do in the market, the kinds of customers we wanted to go after, et cetera, all emanating from the distinction between the old marketplace understanding and the new marketplace understanding. So the core of the book is all about getting to that new marketplace understanding and looking at its implications back to our basic thinking our basic decisions and action. And uh, on this concept, so um, one of the things, so I wanna to touch the marketplace. So how do you define marketplace? And I think it's particularly important because at the moment, when you look at marketplace, there's the marketplace or businesses, kind of the offline marketplace concept. Yeah. And there's increasingly the concept of marketplaces online. And these marketplaces right now are bridging and as well, most of the business in the world, if you look at purely macro data, is migrating to platforms. So you have Amazon, you have Alibaba, you have uh, Walmart, that is as well becoming a, a, a massive digital uh, uh, marketplace. So I would like to touch 
from the conventional, first of all, the definition of marketplace, how do you see that? And secondly, how do you see this bridge between the offline and the online marketplace concepts? Yeah, let's go back to the first part of that question, because to me, it's very, very important from a corporate perspective, from an academic perspective. When we talk about the marketplace, we're essentially talking about anything outside the organization. So we will look at the product marketplace, the ecosystem around your products, around your customers, around your technologies, etc. But that's only one marketplace. There's another marketplace called the institutional marketplace. And this is the marketplace where government agencies exist, where NGOs exist, where community groups exist, where social interest groups exist. And that whole institutional marketplace is becoming ever more important for companies operating in the product marketplace. Because in that institutional marketplace, very often they have the power to decide whether or not your product actually makes it into the market what the rules of the game are once your product is in the market and what kinds of alliances you need to have in the governmental world and in the NGA world, NGO world and in the community and social interest world, etc. So one piece of analysis that we did for a global manufacturing firm, we discovered in one particular country in that institutional market, the local community was incredibly important and could in effect dictate where you put your manufacturing plant. Now the company headquartered in the US had absolutely no understanding of the dynamics of that institutional marketplace in that foreign country. Okay? The other marketplace that we look at very often is the whole marketplace of ideas and knowledge. So if you look at the marketplace of ideas, let's say for example, around sustainability or around education or around food, all of humanity's basic needs. There's a marketplace out there around ideas in these areas. So if you're in any industry that's affected by these areas, you're gonna have tremendous implications back in terms of your strategy, what you can do, what kinds of products you can put in the marketplace, where you can manufacture, how you can market, how you can sell, etc. So that whole marketplace that historically was not looked at by companies is increasingly now being looked at. So, for example, if you're going to operate in China, you better understand what the institutional market is in China. You better understand what the market for ideas is in and around China, in Southeast Asian countries, and in Europe. Okay? So very often people get shocked when they go from France to Germany. Well, these are adjoining countries that must be the same. From an American point of view, with a long distance lens, they do look the same. But if you're on the ground and you're building ground level truth and how they operate, they're fundamentally different. This is a, a key element that I'm particularly interested from your research on, on that specific area. Like you mentioned, you have in the marketplace or in the conventional definition of marketplace, because mm -hmm. it's very important to define, like you mentioned, academically and from mm -hmm. a conventional, is that it, it effectively, let's say, we have the ideas marketplace, we have the network marketplace, mm -hmm. we have even the sales marketplace, and all these marketplaces are very different. Uh, at the, at one of the things I've been finding out even as a CEO, and that's probably my biggest challenge for instance, if I look at me as a teacher that has been teaching in business schools, one thing is trying to convince and prepare other leaders and MBAs where I've been teaching as well. But when it comes to reality, it's a massive complexity because all these fragmented marketplaces are not talking with each other. And if you don't find the bridges, for instance, finding the bridges with good sales marketplace or with good ideas marketplace or even network marketplace mm -hmm. for other CEOs, your company will fail. And it's about as well, probably creating an ecosystem 
Um, I just want to understand how do you see these parts? Because I think, of course, you have both the experience and the research. I would like to hear your thoughts on this, especially because you look at this not just in a short time perspective, but with a, a lot of decades of research and academic uh, base um, insights. Yeah. Um, let, let me tell you a quick story to lead into answering your question. Uh, about 10 years ago, for a, a large, well known US company, uh, I used to do a, a day a month with them and giving them a global tour. Okay? And we literally did all continents, etc., just highlighting political, economic, cultural, social change in these areas, and then looking at the patterns that we were seeing and the implications for business. And one of the set of questions that I always asked was, you know, what worries you more? Is it computer viruses or is it human viruses? I remember this is 10 years ago. Okay. The answer 90% of the time plus was computer viruses. Because we'd had some experience of computer viruses in the early year, in the early years of uh, viruses penetrating computers around the global kids. I'm willing to bet if I asked that question, that same company today, uh, 98-99% of people would say human viruses because we've lived through COVID. Okay. So the point I'm trying to make here is that in many respects, we're always heavily influenced by our history, our past history and the present that we're living in. The problem is that a lot of that history is a very poor predictor of what's going to happen around us in the future. And the parallel with companies is that our historic and current financial performance is a lousy predictor of what our financial performance will be two, three or four years out. Now, we all know that, but we insist on, on um, ignoring it, okay? So to lead back into your question, if you just take those couple of examples, the world outside is far more integrated than is typically taught in your classic MBA program. Right? Because what happens in Southeast Asia does affect what happens in, in Europe and in, in the U.S. And one of the examples I'm looking at right now is you've got a Thai, Taiwanese semiconductor firm that's well on its way to being the sole semiconductor provider in the world, literally in the world. Uh, so far ahead of U.S. firms right now, you can't even see them in the rear of your mirror with binoculars. Okay. So what does that mean for the world if we end up with a, a Taiwanese manufacturer who is dominating the semiconductor world through very smart strategy, very smart manufacturing, et cetera? Well, we're seeing the example now where some car companies are having their production line stalled, slowed, or stopped because they can't get the right kinds of processors. Okay? I mean, a car nowadays is nothing more than a computer on wheels. That's essentially what it is. Right? So I can sit inside here in my home and have the software in my car change while I'm sleeping. Now, to tell somebody 10, 15 years ago that that was likely going to be happening in 2020 or 2021, you know, they'd have left you from here to Lisbon. But that's the nature of the world that, that we're living in. Okay? So if you look at the stock market and you look at the percentage of the stock gains as a tribunal to four or five of the technology companies and compare that to the other companies, it's totally out of hand, okay? And yet that gets no visibility, it gets very little discussion in the trade press, but that's what's really driving the stock market. It's a very interesting point. And that brings me to the, the second part, which is critical in your book. And I will just use two quotes that you have used uh, in your PR and your communications. 
In this area of uncertainty, it has never been more important to use data to develop informed business strategies to deliver objectives more efficiently and effectively. And on average, about two-thirds, around 68% of data available to organizations, goes unused, wasting time, money, and opportunities. And then the last one that you mentioned here as well relates to this, many organization cultures emphasis analysis project completion rather than insight contribution, while leaders don't know what to do to encourage the crafting of insight. So could you elaborate on these three? Because I think this is particularly important, these three areas, and the two first are about data, but the yeah. third one relates how you, you look at this, because it's not just about the data, it's about the way you look at the data in your management teams. Maybe the best way of working into this is with a little example. Uh, was it two years ago, maybe three years ago, working with an analysis team, a very, very well-known company uh, who are doing a um, industry analysis project and had gotten all the data together and had uh, done extensive analysis and had provided, had gotten the findings. And the team collectively was wiping its brow and saying, oh my God, we're done, finished, got this one done, let's move to the next project. Um, had to rather inform them that, no, you're only starting. Because the conception of the project was very simple. We do what we're asked to do. We pull all the analysis together. We create descriptions of where the industry is heading, what the future might look like. What they'd forgotten to do was out of that, what are the implications for the business? So where are the new marketplace opportunities? Where are the big competitive risks for the existing strategies? Where are the vulnerabilities for the potential options that they were looking at? And what kinds of shifts would they have to make in their assumptions guiding the strategy and guiding the thinking. That was not part of their, mind, or their mental model in how to do this analysis. So we literally had to stop what they were doing, move to the second part of the analysis, and then be able to come back and present to the executive team based on their best judgments, what the opportunities were, et cetera, et cetera. One outcome of that intervention was that we changed the whole dialogue and deliberations between the executive team and their professional analysts. Now the whole dialogue was around, where are the big opportunities for us? Why are those opportunities out there? Why have we missed them before? What are the two or three new risks that are on the horizon that we hadn't been paying attention to? And most critically of all, what were the latent assumptions that were in our minds and our mental model that were never spoken, but were driving how we were thinking? One of those assumptions was that two of our competitors would be launching new products within a six to nine one period. The analysis told us that those competitors were nowhere near being able to take new products to the market and probably wouldn't do so for two or three years. That totally changed our short run strategy. So I was looking at the implications from the analysis, not the data per se, not the analysis per se. Yeah, it's really important to think about that and as well special to analyze that. So one question related with that is, and is partly what you try to answer in this book is the question, what does it mean to be an intelligent, intelligence leader? Uh, I created a platform called Intelligent ASQ. So I'm particularly, this is quite very dear for me. So yeah. I'd like to hear your concept on this. Now, I'm coming, the answer is coming at it from the vantage point of an executive in an organization who is called the head of intelligence, head of corporate intelligence, or is the intelligence leader, or is the VP of intelligence, or nowadays the VP of insight and intelligence, all kinds of names. That's the vantage point I'm coming from. 
Okay. So from that vantage point, the role of that person is to enlighten management and the organization on what kinds of changes are happening externally and what are the implications of those changes. Okay. To, so that executives, managers, project leaders, etc., can make more intelligent decisions, make those decisions more intelligently, whichever way you want to take it. Okay. So from that vantage point, the whole focus of that person is externally focused on understanding the implications of change, current, emerging, and future, and then coming back and looking at what it means for the organization internally. So you have both the external and the internal where we started. The second role of that person, and this is very, very important, that person has to be somewhat independent of the executives that he or she is reporting into. Because you're literally going to be walking into that executive team and challenging their perspective on the world, challenging their assumptions on the world, challenging decisions that they may have publicly committed to, okay? And they can be very, very challenging conversations with a lot of fire and brimstone in those rooms. So that intelligence leader has got to be a very strong person with a very, very strong reputation in that company for speaking the truth to power, for giving honest opinions, and for being very uh, discreet and political in how he or she deals with executive teams and managers at middle levels of the organization. Being the intelligence leader is not for the weak. Very important point. And I think I'm trying to see how we can actually build this in an, in an organization and how to make it work because sometimes the challenge is how to leave these people to lead and as well making sure that all the, the urgencies in different areas can actually work together. But so, to, connect uh, back to, sorry, to connect back to one of your earlier comments, that intelligence leader may be pulling from a lot of data and analysis done by all kinds of people around the organization, okay? Because in a true and literal sense, the intelligence leader and his or her support staff do not have the time to deal with all the issues and questions that any organization is going to be confronting. So that intelligence leader has to be working very carefully with the marketing folks, the legal folks, the finance folks, et cetera, et cetera, and bringing it all together for a presentation to executive teams. Yeah, I think it's, that's the, the challenge. I think that it's a very good the, um, way of wrapping up the entire organization. And I like more than the chief data scientist, which is much more very technology driven, but forgets the intelligence, which I think is key for organizations. And as well, sometimes common sense, but we forget that. So one of the, the areas that you touch as well in your new book is understanding the digital landscape and the implications for intelligent work yeah. or intelligence work. Um, so especially in, in COVID-19 um, times where with all the challenges, we see many business and economic models being disrupted, but as well that uh, uh, the digital world became uh, more powerful than ever, special digital transformation technology, because at the moment, the few business, well, most of the business that are surviving is thanks to digital platforms like the one we're using for this interview, but as well, how you can actually keep your business model going through digital. So how do you see this part, especially in the context of what we've been talking so far? Well, this connection between digital and business models is something we're actually getting into quite seriously right now. Because to state the obvious, the massive implications for business models. Okay, one in particular that we're taking a look at. <clears throat> I mean, how do you do marketing in 
this new digital world where you don't often have access to your customer or your consumer, and especially in the B2B world. Okay. So we're seeing some significant shifts in how you connect to your customer, or you can build real-time data connections with your customer in many respects. You can build real-time conversations with your customer. You can identify the key people in your customer that you want to continue conversing with. And it turns out very often you can have more and better conversations with key people in your customer organization than you could have in, in pre-digital days. Okay, so when you think very carefully about who you want to access, what kinds of questions you want to raise with those kinds of people, how frequently you want to engage with them, remembering that the digital connection is a two-way street. So you're providing information, they're providing information, and hopefully at both ends you've got a better understanding of how you want to engage with each other. And in many respects, build a better value proposition to those B2B customers than you could have historically. And the kinds of platforms that you use in many respects becomes largely irrelevant because you'll be using multiple different platforms. Some platforms will be engaging in data transmission. Other platforms will be engaging in, engaging in video interaction. Okay. Um, and your whole global supply chain may be on a totally different kind of platform run by different kinds of people. So you're, to where you started uh, managing these multiple platforms simultaneously becomes a real challenge, which I don't think anybody has developed convincing and inclusive answers to quite yet. That is the biggest challenge, I think, of our times right now is are we going to be uh, putting all of this working, but as well understanding, because of course, it depends a lot of the next six months if things come down with COVID or not. But at the same time, I don't think things will come back to the same point because a lot of organizations worldwide are, are asking people to work from home, to adapt to a lot of these different things. So I want to touch more in one area because this is an area that uh, I'm particularly interested in my series, but as well that I know that you have a lot of data. So from your experience, and of course you have a wealth of experience, both in theory, but as well in practice from decades. So you've been seeing major global organizations, you mentioned IBM, going up and down and some of them keeping up <laughs> because some of them managed. But for instance, you mentioned General Electric, which was at a certain point the most valuable company in the world and then went down quite significant. Uh, and uh, and actually, if you look, look at uh, another guru of, of, of one of the biggest names, there was the former CEO of General Electric is, uh, that, that uh, made an entire career around that. But yeah. then now is a, is a company that partly lost its impact. So I, I want to touch this kind of... Um, the dynamics in terms of corporations and as well at the moment we have as well one thing that is not so much in your book but i want to touch that because it touches in the data part at the moment the world valuation of startups is becoming a bit uh, crazy because for instance we have clubhouse that went to reach one billion dollars without any revenue and without anything and a lot of other companies like that but um, a lot of these valuations are created by sentiment related with investment and yeah. by investors in particular, and by number of users in most of the cases. So with all this digital uh, kind of, and this is a very broader question, so it's a bit more of a reflection that I want to hear from you, especially because I think it's important to interact with people that have different experience with, with the management, but as well experience, because a lot of the things is, for instance, me as a CEO, and I'm not so young, but uh, of course you have much more maturity than me, is that I have to deal with so much... Uh, fundamental difference because for instance if i have a, a part of the team in asia 
they I have to tell them exactly everything to do and everything to do, otherwise they won't do it. If I have in Africa, I have to be very authoritarian because the way they 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 know how to do it. And when I say authoritarian in a positive way, but if you go, for instance, for the US, there's much more an, a culture of sales, a culture of of uh, of different things. We are in a very global world as well. So from your experience in Emesha, IBM, and, and other big brands, uh, without going too much in names, but uh, some some tips that you give for our ties, because I think the complexity is that it's not going to be less, it's going to be much bigger, because like you mentioned, and in your book, there's the intelligence around data. We did still continuing having emotional intelligence around people, around teams, but at the same time, there's this, all this disruption that has been happening as we speak. So it's probably about how to deal with chaos in management, because I think it's the world we are living in. But the data is there. But sometimes data is, is irrelevant, because, for instance, you have data, but if you don't have the capacity to build a community of the capacity to link marketplaces, you have a challenge. So it's a broader question, but I would like, especially someone like you that has been doing so wonderful research, I would like to hear uh, your uh, opinion on this. <laughs> Um, again, let me use a case and then we'll come back to answering the question in, in specific terms. Um, over the course of one year, I ended up doing work for one particular company in um, China, India, uh, Thailand, Taiwan, um, Germany, Switzerland, Brazil, Mexico, and the US, right? And so I got a first-hand opportunity on the ground to try to understand what this particular company was trying to do in the circumstances prevailing in each country. And what we concluded very simply was from a, both a macro strategy point of view and from a local strategy point of view, that if this particular company tried to do the same things in the same way in each of these countries, disaster could only be the outcome. Okay? So managing its business in India, Okay, where you had you know five or six million local retail or, or operations distributing its products, and looking at then in Brazil what was happening there, and then coming back to Mexico, and then moving to Taiwan into China, these were totally totally different contexts. So one of the biggest problems that I see in large corporations is how do you build multiple business models? How do you build multiple mental models and be able to operate them simultaneously across different countries at the same time? It's a ferocious challenge for companies. And it's a big challenge for German companies. It's a big challenge for US companies, which tended to have a rather doctrinaire view of how we do business and how we build a business should operate in every country, okay? And we used to joke with this particular company that if your binoculars were good enough from a Chicago or New York, you ought to be able to see what's happening in Thailand. Well, it doesn't quite work that way. You've got to be on the ground and build what we call the concept we stole from the U.S. Army, ground-level truth. Okay? Because the ground-level truth operating in Thailand is not the ground-level truth operating in the mid-Atlantic states in the U.S. or in Bavaria in Germany. It's just not. Okay? So one of the challenges is this, this complex of business models and mental models and interaction between them. And that leads to a very complex question that's sort of alluded to in your question, which is training and development of senior personnel to manage this. Okay? So if you've operated only in the U.S. and you now find yourself overseeing businesses that are global, 
genuinely global with local business in multiple different countries, you've got a real problem, okay? And so it's the same problem that I observed with Jack Welch in GE. If you've just got one mental model of how you want to build this corporation, and if circumstances don't allow that mental model to succeed, and you reach a time period where there's a clash between your mental model and the changes outside, your mental model is going to lose. And it takes companies sometimes a long time to deal with that. Unfortunately, in my conversations with academics around the world, that's a topic that's rarely discussed in any real detail inside MBA programs. So apologies for getting on my high horse here, but it's one of the things that I see in all the organizations that I'm working in. And by the way, it's also a problem for large NGOs. So if it you've is. got a global NGO and you're working in multiple different parts of the world, you've got to be able to build your institutional strategy. And if you're working in India in healthcare and you're working in China in healthcare and you're working in Brazil in healthcare and you're working in the US, you're in fundamentally different healthcare systems. And the way you operate the strategy or influence strategy has got to be different and adjusted to those areas. It's You touch, I think I love what you mentioned about mental health models or management models because I think that's what I feel even in a small startup in my case is not like a big one like like Luan's you mentioned but I think it's it's really really difficult and I think the this is increasing more difficult as everyone is working from home they have to share the space and, and I'm lucky because I have a big house and and I cannot complain but a lot of people are sharing a house with children with wives and uh, and very few people have this capacity. In, in a lot of cases, children are not even going to school. So this mental mob models mixed with cultural models. And for instance, there are people that cannot work from their own or actually work from their own. I would say that is a big challenge, especially young people. Um, and we have that challenge that people that if we don't instruct them, it becomes a nightmare. So I, I really want to highlight this part because it's probably one of the most important things for any CEO or level management. So that brings us, and uh, we passed one hour, but uh, if you have still a bit more of time, I wanna touch a couple of things. So one of the things that you mentioned that you, you've you been looking at five top tips to turn data into valuable insights and competitive advantage. I think this might answer at least to what we're talking about right now, because in the end of the day, we have data, sometimes we don't see it, or sometimes we don't look at our own institutions and, and for instance, when you look at data, we always think about big data and big things, but sometimes just looking, okay, is the person sending emails? Is the person answering emails? If a person is not sending emails, is not answering anything, we have to understand is the person working or not? So I'm just looking, how do you see this data from a, let's say a big corporation for a medium and a small one, but as well, how you look at these five, tip tops, uh, five uh, top tips that you, you, you've been researching and you wanna share with us? Okay, tip, tip number one is remember the conception of insight that we're talking about. New marketplace understanding and its implications for business. So it's both, okay? So that, that's the first tip that we always do because everything hinges on having that understanding of insight between your ears. Second big tip is small data can sometimes lead to big insights. And by small data, I mean, for example, a conversation with an executive in a customer, okay? a, a point that's made in a consulting report, okay? an observation that somebody makes on TV. Okay? So to give you one real classic example, um, 
we were working with an organization and doing some customer uh, data uh, gathering. And a customer just said to us flippantly, you know, if you redesign that product so they could do something for me that would make my life much easier in application of that product, you know, you guys are smart. Why don't you just do it? And it was sort of a half-joking comment, but it led to the observation that it was possible to redesign the product quite simply. And suddenly, a whole new application was now available to people who were using the product. And it led to about a half a billion dollar increase in sales. It was a small piece of data okay, delivered by a person who was using the product, who understood its application and said, wait a moment. If you just change this in this way, I can then use the product in many different ways, okay? I'm not revealing the product here because of some sensitivity around the data, okay? So that small piece of data led to us asking the question, which is the second point, drawing inferences from data. So when you look at, for example, uh, data, a big data project and you get data patterns, so you see a customer pattern, you see a consumer pattern, okay? What inferences do you want to draw from that consumer pattern? So for example, when we worked on consumers are looking for more um, green packaging in this product area. And it's clear from their use of their product, it's clear from the data that we've gathered from the customer from the consumer surveys. So we might draw an inference that customers are going to migrate much more quickly to green packaging might draw an inference that all competitors are going to move in this direction. We might draw an inference that it allows us to build some technology into our packaging. So maybe in that milk container, what we want to build in is a chip that tells the uh, homeowner that the milk is almost empty. So it led to a lot of different inferences. So the third thing I usually emphasize with people is draw multiple different inferences from the data, even where the inferences are in, con in conflict. Okay. Uh, the fourth one that I usually hit people with is put the data away and get four or five people in front of a whiteboard and talk out loud to each other and ask each other, what are you learning from the data? What are the big inferences that you're drawing? How are these different than the inferences we drew previously? So what are we learning about customers? What are we learning about competitors? What are we learning about ourselves? And then the, the fifth big uh, uh, point that we make with people in terms of helping them to get insight is always draw inferences about your own organization. So I'll give you an example. Um, we're doing this analysis looking at competitors, looking at technology change. And we stopped and we said, wait a moment, what inferences might we draw about implications for us? And we quickly concluded as a first tentative conclusion, our R&D programs are not sufficient to give us leading technology in our product marketplace two, three, four years down the road. Massive implication for our business because we're investing tons of money in our R&D programs. But when we looked at what competitors were doing, what technology change was coming at us, the light suddenly went off between our collective ears. And then when we looked at the implication back to us, okay, that our R&D technology programs were just not going to generate products with the right kinds of attributes and capabilities and customer functionalities to win in the business. That was tremendously important to us, but had we not adhered to that fifth dictate of drawing inferences of implications back to our business, we probably wouldn't have concluded, if at all, it would have been three, four, five, or six months out. 
So therefore, five things that we really harp on with people to understand the concept of insight, pay attention to small data, draw inferences, etc., and especially draw inferences back to your own organization. And don't be afraid to put the data away, go to a whiteboard and just talk to each other. And I think this is the, the most important thing for our times, I think, in terms of the way we deal with data and the way we can do that. So thank you so much for that. It's amazing. Um, I want as well to touch, uh, if you still have a bit more of time. Um, so you put as well, uh, so that's two very different companies, but this is one of the case studies that you use. So what Uber and Apple can teach us about the importance of business insights. I think this could not be more different companies. Of course, one is a very disruptive company that has been under a lot of scandals, but as well is one of the biggest corporations in the world. And Apple is the biggest corporation in the world as we speak, um, but as well has been much more, well, I would say more conservative approach towards data, but more focus on product and less in terms of marketing, and marketing more focus on product and different things and the innovation. So I would like to hear how do you put these two companies and how do you put the case study? So Apple, and what was the second company, sorry? It, this was from one of your insights that you mentioned. So Uber and Apple can teach us about the importance of oh, business okay. insights. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. yeah, again, I, I have not been inside either company, um, although I've looked very carefully at Apple as a competitor, and we did competitor analysis, and I suspect we'll be looking at Uber and Lyft as a competitor in the not-too-distant future. <clears throat> Uh, a couple of things from the outside looking in, and it goes back to something you said earlier on. You've got to be willing to learn and learn very fast and act accordingly. Okay, And you've got to be willing to understand that failure is a natural part of the process of growing companies, developing companies and strategy in marketplaces. Um, Uber has had a hell of an experience in grappling with its internal issues and building a strategy and building one on a global scale, okay? Um, and, and having margins and profits as a consequence, not incidental to the problems that they're having. Um, Apple, on the other hand, has had a whole series of product failures and product success, successes. But the key to me in looking at Apple is this enormous quest for new understanding and pushing the envelope of change and being willing to do things, learn from them very fast, come back and assess what that learning is, what that learning means and its implications for all facets of the business, including senior leadership. That real commitment to learning and acting accordingly, I often don't see in more legacy, what I call legacy, traditional corporations uh, much slower to learn, much slower to act, much slower to react, okay? And therefore, from an insight point of view, uh, not getting the quality of insight in terms of new understanding and its implications for the business. Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly the more important thing. So probably as one of my last questions, and I think as well, something from, uh, from your actually uh, notes that I check uh, with you and your team, I think one of the things I would like to talk is, is mostly... I think uh, the, there's, well, there's still three things that I would like to touch. So I'll go one by one if you still have time. So the first thing is, how can leaders establish an insight culture? And feel free if you don't have time to tell, because I know that oh. we've passed one hour. So I think let's start by this one, because this is the most important thing. And I think this probably summarizes what we've been talking. How can yeah. leaders establish an insight culture? And what do you mean by this? Probably as well as the concept of intelligence, yeah. but as well in, in a more broader way. 
Okay. When we work with leaders on the inside culture, it almost always comes down to this great phenomenon of meetings. And you look at leaders and you ask, what percentage of your time is spent in meetings? And in many cases, it's over 90%. So meetings become your access point into shifting that culture. So for example, um, ask insight-related questions. When people are making presentations for you, stop them and ask, okay, what are the two or three big insights out of your presentation? Okay, uh, when you're creating the agenda for meetings, uh, make sure that insight is part of the agenda. Um, when you're engaging with people in dialogue and conversations, uh, ask them to build insight, to create insight, observe insight, present insight, and then ask them to do the opposite. So if you have a new insight into customer or competitors or technology, what might be the conflicting insight? What might be the conflicting understanding? and get people to really focus in on, on new understanding and its implications and use meetings as the way to do it, okay? Uh, with one executive, we, we pulled a little game, which was the following. We knew what the presentation was going to be. We had the executive do the following. Five minutes into the presentation, ask the team, what are three or four big insights out of your analysis and what are the implications for the strategies we're addressing today? We knew that they couldn't answer the question. So what we had the executive do was the following. Okay, this meeting is now canceled. We will come back in three weeks time and you team will start your presentation by answering the question I just asked. Okay, That intervention in that meeting went through that organization at the speed of a MIP, speed of light. Okay, So when the next team came back in to do a presentation to that executive team, guess what? They were starting with the insights out of their analysis. So for leaders, it's picking the intervention points very carefully and then walking the talk, living the life, making sure insights are the focal point. You don't need to do videos. You don't need to do big memos. You put it very, very straightforward, and I think that's the way to go. So last two ones. So three marketing campaigns inspired by powerful customer insights. And I think this is as well one of your notes that I, I think it's particularly relevant for our audience and for, for everyone who listens to us. Yeah, un unfortunately, I, when we get into the real details, I can't name companies, but I'll, I'll give you, let me give you one big- No worries, top level, I think you've got, you're very, you're very uh, efficient yeah. on that. Yeah, um, well, what I just mentioned, um, where, where the customer engagement led to the new insight about the, the switch in the product configuration and the features led to a new application with a half a billion dollars in sales as a consequence over, I think, about four or five years. Um, another one, another B2B example. <clears throat> Um, we were doing some work, um, and this was actually an Asian example, where we were the supplier to a um, big manufacturing organization. And uh, the insight was that we needed to uh, ensure the manufacturer that we could deliver just in time uh, for their needs. And it was an ingredient. And what we ended up doing was actually creating a system, uh, an underground system of pipes that led from our manufacturing plant to their manufacturing plant so that they could draw down the supply of the ingredient as they needed in a real time and eliminated the problems got to do with logistics, got to do with costs, got to do with inventory and created tremendous savings for the corporate customer. And we recognized that as a value add. So we charged a more price and created increased revenues, uh, margins and revenues for us, the provider. 
again, coming out of the analysis of the interaction between us, the manufacturer, and data customer. There are two examples of where we shifted the whole marketing campaign around the product, around the sales activity, uh, with tremendous value to the customer and the user. So last one, and I think it's particularly important we touch this, but I would like to have as well um, on this uh, quote of yours, competitive analysis. And I think this is very relevant, how to outwit, outmaneuver, and outperform your rivals. Because I think this is the most important thing, is that if you see an Alexa ranking, for instance, your website, normally your competitors or your competitors actually that the search engines look at you are never the same as you think they are. Um, And you might have this ambition about one thing, especially if you're a startup, but if you are a big corporation, sometimes one of the things I've been finding out is the lack of, first of all, the, the lack of digital insights, let's put it that way, but as well, the lack of understanding the velocity of things. And I think we have a lot of companies that are really, you feel they are completely lost but because they have somehow an old model, business model that is still working, they keep making money. <laughs> and all the businesses around that old business model, that even if it's dying, they will get together on that. And of course, creates cash flow enough to keep the business at least for a couple of years, but probably they will then fall completely out. So how do you look at this competitive analysis, especially with all these different things? Um, from a competitor analysis point of view, uh, from a strategy point of view, the, the real battle among companies nowadays is for insight. Because if you don't get the insight right, then the strategy and the operations and everything else is not going to be right. So the, the big battle is the battle around insight. And that's why I emphasize the three elements, outwitting, outmaneuvering, and outperforming. And, and that always uh, contained in the book on competitors um, you know, written 20 years ago. Um, so outwitting is basically how do you outsmart the competitor? How do you get to insights faster than the competitor? So how do you get to understanding of customers or competitors of technology or marketplace change of what's happening in China or Brazil or wherever? How do you get to quality insights faster and better than your competitors? So that's the first big part. And that involves doing the right kinds of analysis and paying attention to understanding the change that's taking place. An example, a recent example is... um, I think we outwitted a competitor by understanding where three technologies were coming together and we're going to create a whole new white space uh, for a product that is not in the marketplace today, but most likely will be there two or three years from now. So if we have that understanding and we have that insight faster than any competitor, then we've got a real opportunity to outmaneuver and outperform them. Okay, uh, so we do a lot of invented competitor analysis. That is, we'll invent a competitor with a plausible strategy that could be in the market three years out, that's not in the market today. And if that competitor were in the market three years out, how would they compete against the existing competitors? What kind of competitive advantage would they have? What kind of customer advantage would they have? How would we compete against them? So it becomes a way of identifying opportunities in the market by inventing the competitor around a whole new product or a whole new solution or a whole new customer need. And in that way, then outwit those competitors who are not thinking like that. 
So it requires different ways of thinking about the marketplace. Then outmaneuvering is all about how do you take actions faster and better and more incisively than competitors. So a current example where we're working with a client who's, where we believe is outmaneuvering its rivals by building a, a very sophisticated network of alliances at both the production end on a global scale and on the customer end in terms of channels, customers, and some NGOs so that we're much better positioned to win in the global marketplace than our competitive rivals. So the outmaneuvering is all about building this network of alliances uh, much better than our rivals. And then outperforming beyond all the standard kinds of things of market share, share of customer, margins, profits, etc. The things that we look at in particular is who is outperforming rivals to better position themselves to win in the future. And that often comes back to who is building the kinds of capabilities that are going to be required to win in the future. Digital capabilities, technology capabilities in terms of R&D, manufacturing, etc. Building the kinds of alliances required to win. Okay, uh, Doing the kind of product market testing to learn what's happening in the markets. So outperforming beyond the standard kinds of things, looking at who's likely to position themselves to better win two, three, five, or eight, or ten years out. In the pharmaceutical or biotech world, we're often going out 10 to 15 years because of the time lag involved in, in, develop, in product development, in, in basic R&D. Okay? So that's a quick tour throughout waiting, outmaneuvering, outperforming. Very good way of summarizing, and I appreciate. So Dr. Will Liam is a fantastic, has been, oh, I have a lot of more questions, but I'll leave you for making a brief. It's been one hour and a half, uh, quite dynamic. We'll put the links for all the books and for the new book. And as well for people listening to us, um, Dr. Lion Fai, um, I'm probably I'm not spelling it correctly, but, uh, but uh, we, we're going to, have, so the book is, the new book is business, um, are rich in data, but poor in insight. Um, and I think this is a book that I think everyone should get is available. Of course, will be available in all the major uh, global uh, at the moment, marketplaces, let's use it that way for books. Yeah. Um, but I, I would suggest as well to read the multiple research and the, and the, and the other places where Dr. Lyon has been creating and all discussing all the different things. So thank you so much. Um, and of course, it can be found in a lot of different platforms all over the internet. Yeah, but by the way, the, the, the title of the most recent book is The Insight Discipline. Yes, The Insight Discipline, yes. Yeah. Um, the, 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 that is the second, the, the subtitle, sorry, the inside discipline. Um, so, um, any other things that you want to just highlight for our audience, Dr. Lyon? So, I think just as a, uh, a summary and the synthesization of what you've been talking. The one thing I would recommend to people, and this is especially through the startups that you mentioned you're involved in, is really understanding the, the mental model that you're working with in the startup. I mean, what kinds of assumptions are you making about your product, your customers, your marketplace? And then the second is a commitment to learning and learning fast. That's the, the holy grail of everything right now. Thank you so much, Dr. Lyon. It's been a fantastic pleasure. I've been learning a lot myself and I'll listen to this interview multiple times to get a lot of the insights and I took a lot of notes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.